Sir, we've had a little problem. These two women are just arriving. They objected to giving up their weapons. Klingons do not surrender their weapons. Who are you? We are Lursa and Baton of the House of Duras. Hello, and welcome to the Duras Sisters podcast. We are not Klingons, but we are sisters. <laughs> I'm Ashlyn. And I'm Rihanna. And today we are going to be discussing the Next Generation pilot, Encounter at Farpoint. We've been waiting for this day. We are so excited to be discussing this awesome episode. This is the second episode in our pilot series. Go back and listen to uh, our first episode, which was about the original series. Our episode after this will be Deep Space Nine's pilot. And then we're going to go on to Voyager, Enterprise, uh, Picard, all the rest of them. Uh, This is going to be an awesome series. We wanted to do the pilot series because it's our pilot series as a podcast and I think taking a look at beginnings is a good way of just diving into this amazing world that we love so much. So strap in because here we go to the next generation's pilot encounter at Farpoint. Um, so Rihanna I yeah, want yeah. you to talk about your experience with the next generation and your kind of relationship with the next generation series because we talked a lot about that uh, with the original series, but I feel like this is a this is a totally different beast. This is a much longer series, and Absolutely. I'm I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on Next Generation and kind of your relationship with it. Well, thanks for asking, Ashlyn. Sure. Um, I love the Next Generation. I mean, obviously, it's a great show. I love it for different reasons than I love the original series. The original series has a lot of sentimentality for me because it was my first. <laughs> and you never forget your first. Never. <laughs> the next generation for me was sort of a turning point to where Star Trek was like cool in a way. I mean, as cool as a middle schooler who's watching Star Trek can feel watching oh, Star yeah. Trek. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the technology was different. The characters were different. Even the adventures. Yes, it was the same name, Enterprise. And that felt very much like home. I think that I connected a lot more with the characters on Next Generation, whereas I connected with the values on the original series. And it doesn't, it's not like the next generation lost those values. It still has the same ideas and Gene Runbury-esque plots and episodes, but the characters were really rich in the next generation. And they all got these arcs and these timelines. And I think because also next generation had more time, they had seven seasons to grow these characters and make you love them and hate them and everything in between. They became really special to me. How about you, Ashlyn? I love that. And that's pretty much my answer, too. We know a lot more about their backstory than we ever did in uh, the original series. And I am also kind of a big buff about how, like, the the nuts and bolts about how the sci-fi world works. I really love fantasy and sci-fi and any kind of world that is created that is, like, has really niche details. And so The Next Generation really expanded a lot of the lore for me. We see Jordy work so finitely with the warp engines. I feel like as a big nerd who's seen a lot of Next Generation, I could like be an engineer, you know, or yeah. um, I, I just love knowing so much more about the world and how much is expanded. Some of the villains introduced in this show are the best villains in all of Star Trek and they're villains that are continued to be drawn on later um, in the next couple series. Wow, well, that's great. I really loved that explanation. And I forgot that when we would watch Star Trek together, Ashley would be nerding out. She'd be like, oh, man, if this happens, there's going to be a cascade failure in the warp core. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, how do you know this? You, like, she could definitely have just, like, taken O'Brien's place and it would have been fine. Oh, well, I mean, Rihanna, you could have taken O'Brien's place. <laughs> Burn. Um, I'm also curious. This is all about pilots. We have talked about, like, what makes a pilot good so we can kind of relate to this because now like we just had the rebirth of discovery and all these new star trek shows and so many people were very against it i saw i'm in a lot of facebook groups that like star trek facebook groups and so many of them were like we hate discovery and we've never even Mm. seen it when a new show comes out everyone hates it and then of course everyone watches it and everyone loves it that's the exact same pattern we've had for years and so 
I'm thinking like this was the first time that Trek fans had experienced this where, you know, <laughs> yeah. they're all, they're, they're like, where are my primary colors? Where's my, uh, where's my where's Kirk? Shatner? Yeah. yeah, where's William Shatner? So Next Generation started 17 years after the original series had aired. And wow. it was the most watched show, most watched syndicated TV show, which means that the most, it's just shown in reruns, but it was the highest rated show ever, like of all time. And so, wow. so opinions on original <laughs> series are bursting high. People are sweating and dying for original series. Yes, yeah. so true. For you, Rihanna, do you have an open mind to new shows? Like, I I'm just curious, like, I'm just trying to think back, like trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who is a diehard original series fan, giving the next generation a chance. I think a lot of it came down to this pilot that would make or break the fans love of the show. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a pilot. But I think with Star Trek, because it was already such a huge hit after it had been canceled, this pilot had to do a lot to work in enough of original series and enough of next generation so that they could sort of marry each other in something that could transition. And I trying to remember back to when we watched it the first time after watching the original series. And I think I was pretty into it right away. But also I am very loving to pilots because I know that it's a jumping off point. And so a lot of shows I'll be a lot more forgiving about pilots, but I don't think this one even needs forgiveness. If it's done well enough, then I can totally see people being like, sure, I'll hop on board. Like, let's go. Where are we discovering first? You know? Definitely. Well, and I think our perspective is a little bit different because we had already committed to watching every Star Trek series. <laughs> so, you know, we had committed to watching all of them. And so it wasn't even an option to stop, yeah. kind of, because we, <laughs> yeah. were, we were so excited about Star Trek and we knew the potential it had. We really wanted to see what it was about. So for us, it was okay. never a thing of like, well, I'm giving up because it's yeah. dumb or whatever. No, we Which obviously <laughs> we did not. I mean, I think the pilot would have to like, murder McCoy on the yeah, ship or something right. for me to stop watching. Yeah, so we have a little bit of a different perspective, but I'm also imagining these fans who are watching the syndicated Star Trek, they hear there's a new Trek coming on. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just be overjoyed and I would just love to know if anyone, you know, I'm sure there were haters. I mean, it's pre-internet days, so it's harder to know what the consensus was, but... Well, also, like, if you were around for that transition and want to tell us your story, like... So oh my clean, gosh, you know? yes, I'm please do, please do. Yeah, yeah, we unfortunately were born too late. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we would love to hear your stories about how you first saw The Next Generation and just your thoughts and feelings on that transition. Um, um, Ashton, but, yeah. I'm curious, can you give us uh, a little history, a little background? Rihanna, you read my mind. I was just oh, going right. to say, I'm going to set the stage for <laughs> this <right>. pilot. <laughs> Um, so this is the year 1986. And so at this point, between the end of original series and the beginning of Next Generation, we've had a whole, the whole original series is come and gone. We've had a ton of Paramount produced Star Trek movies. And during that time, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner were demanding more and more money per movie. To the point where, you know, Leonard Nimoy directed um, Search for Spock and then again, and then Voyage Home. God, if we ever do a podcast about those movies, I, I just... I think we should do a whole series about those movies. Jump for joy and pain. <laughs> to, yeah, bring a couple drinks to those podcasts. Oh, but, yeah. um, but so, so all these movies had come and gone and everyone was hyped about Trek. And um, the Paramount chairman, Frank Menesco Sr., he was just so happy that Trek, you know, Trek had been going on for 20 years, basically. And that was something wow. that was so rare in the TV world. Another thing that had happened in those 20 years was Star Wars. Uh, I, Star Wars had left such a mark on society. And suddenly mm. we had this space epic that was so exciting and people are shooting and pew pew star wars you know <laughs> so so that really changed science fiction and entertainment as well that was a huge Absolutely. thing but so basically paramount approached ron barry and said you know as the primary creator of star trek we want you to make another series 
And they had tried, they had tried making uh, Star Trek Phase 2 right before they made Star mm. Trek the Motion Picture, but they didn't have any money. Uh, there was all these, all these problems. And so Roddenberry initially said, no, I don't want to make a series. I want to be done. But then he saw the first couple scripts of these new episodes and he hated them. And oh, he really? said, just kidding. I'm totally in control of the ship now. And so he <laughs> took over it. Uh, classic Roddenberry. Wow. He hired uh, a lot of the same writers from the original series for this first season, including DC Fontana, who is mm. like a pillar of love. Yeah. Um, Bob Justman, Eddie Miltskiff, and David Gerald were all writers on the original series as well as uh, the beginning of Next Generation. Roddenberry really wanted to set this next series in the future as a, a sequel to the original series. So that's why he sent it in the 24th century. Mm -hmm. um, and he also was really looking to think, how are humans behaving differently a hundred years from now? Mm -hmm. And something he thought about was that workplace relationships are going to look a little differently. So mm -hmm. in the original series, you have the kind of typical banter between McCoy and Spock and Kirk. And, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're kind of, oh, yeah, green-blooded obgoblin, you know, <laughs> McCoy being low-key racist to Spock, yeah. but in a loving way. <laughs> it's just like a different type of relationship that you see in the original series. And so Roddenberry wanted all the characters to feel like siblings, like they were working together and had a common goal and there was no fighting between them, no infighting. Mm -hmm. And I feel like to me, I'll just interject, this is kind of a Roddenberry dystopian universe. Like I think <laughs> humans throughout history no matter how long it's going to go by, humans are going to have infighting. But like, I like this idea that he's he's starting. Wait, can I interject real quick? Yeah, That's yeah. Really super interesting about yeah. that. Um, so Roddenberry was creating something that was looking at humans from a different place than where they had come from, just like Q was in the pilot. Huh. Isn't it interesting that he brought McCoy, the person who hmm. was always like racist to everyone, into this yeah. pilot. Hmm, Rihanna. Interesting. Hmm. So basically they started casting everybody because I think about Patrick Stewart is just this tour de force. I mean, he, yeah. he, this is where he started his career. He did a lot of Shakespeare um, in England and before he was cast on Star Trek, but he was actually at UCLA giving a dramatic reading um, in Los Angeles. And uh -huh. uh, one of the executive producers, uh, Bob Justman, came and saw him performing and the next day said come over to gene ronberry's house and do an audition for him what yeah what? yeah yeah audition for picard he got asked to yeah audition? yeah he was asked because he did such a good job at this reading i don't know what the reading was i was trying to figure it out yeah. I, I assume it was maybe shakespeare or something okay, but i'm not watch sure it, watch it be hamlet's uh third <laughs> god right <laughs> yeah yeah honestly yeah um but uh ronberry hated him. After six minutes at the audition, Ronberry threw him out of his house and said, Excuse me? We won't be calling you. <laughs> yeah. Be because Gene Ronberry wanted the captain to be French, not a balding English man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's the most British Frenchman. Oh, it makes, it makes no sense. But I've always wondered that because I'm like, his name is Jean-Luc Picard. He has a yeah. winery. But why is it this British guy? And, yeah, and I've I'd always wondered that it's Thanks. because Gene Ronberry is very aggressive in what he wanted, and he refused to change the name after the role had been created. So what changed his mind? Nothing. Until he died, he hated Patrick Stewart. Oh my the, god! The reason that they casted him onto the show was that everyone except Gene Ronberry loved him. All the executive producers, everyone working on the show, the casting directors loved Patrick Stewart. Gene Ronberry kept bringing other people. Patrick Stewart would just act the crap out of it. So he was hired. Um, wow, I just thought that was, Yeah, right? I thought that was super interesting. As for the other cast, uh, LeVar Burton was the first person asked to do the role of Geordie the Forge because right. of his work on Roots. Oh. He was really, really famous for that. And I mean, just a stunning job on Roots. Totally. Um, so LeVar Burton was asked and they got Jonathan Franks and that was Ron Berry's favorite. He wanted oh. Jonathan Franks to be John Luke Picard. Rihanna and I kind of joke that Riker is Kirk's son. Yeah. <laughs> we like, joke that great, they're related. Grandson. <laughs> yeah. Like they have very similar archetypes of the ladies man oh, and the Yeah, and funny sort of yeah. fly guy. They're very similar. So for the character of Worf, they really wanted a black actor because right. and this is a little sad, they only wanted a black actor because it would make the makeup easier. 
So that's a little bit of a bummer. But also, Roddenberry was really trying to diversify the cast because he wanted it to look nothing like the original series cast. He had created the character of Data. A lot of people auditioned for that. They ultimately liked Brent Spiner. Mm -hmm. I also thought it was crazy because Tim Russ was considered for the role of Jordy. And Tim Russ, you know him as... Tuvok. Yeah, Tuvok. <laughs> yeah. And so I, it so makes sense. From Voyager. For yeah, from Voyager. He yeah. appeared in Voyager. Wow, all these yeah. years later. He That's was considered wild. for Jordy, but he, he turned it down. I think he was busy or something. And so they went with LeVar Burton. Um, <laughs> but yeah. It was a very different Jordy if Tim Russ had played him. That's super yeah. fascinating. They got Gates McFadden, uh, nice. Mariana Stritz, Will Wheaton. Will Wheaton. <laughs> Yep, Will Wheaton, Denise yeah. Crosby. So, so anyway, we have we have our cast of characters here, and I I also thought that was interesting. You know, with the with the original series, they had to have two pilots because CBS didn't like the first round of people, and so I really mm-hmm. like going into this pilot, seeing the cast is here. Yeah, we've got everybody on board. Agreed. Um, let's meet them. Let's go. I had forgotten that everybody was there from the very beginning and it makes it feel special because like for the most part, the core people stay the same. And I think that that's really awesome, especially for a pilot where people tend to come and go or they decide to get rid of other extraneous characters. So Yeah, yeah. It's rare to see them just commit to that cast and say, hey, this works. It. I think it just shows you they had a, a lot more people involved on this pilot that really mm. knew what they were doing and rent kind of could create that beautiful Trek formula and they knew what would work for every episode. So that's honestly, incredible. they could not have gone wrong, I think, unless it was a really terrible episode. But like you mentioned yeah. earlier, Rihanna, like a lot was writing on this, the yeah. opinion of the fans, uh, a lot of money, <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I, I just, I love thinking about it in the context because this is 1986, this is the 80s. Ooh. We've got the Cold War <laughs> happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we needed yeah. something bright and hopeful again, just like we needed it during the original series. Star Trek always comes, we need, need it most. So Ashlyn. Yeah. Before we jump in, I first would like you to describe Encounter at Farpoint in the worst way you can. The Space Center is a jellyfish. <laughs> that was actually a pretty good way <laughs> Honestly, that was kind of how I was feeling at the end of the episode. I was like, really? It's just the like jellyfish. jellyfish. Yeah. yeah. Like jellyfish. <laughs> okay, Rihanna, you go. You explain it the worst way possible. Okay. A bald guy is put to trial by an omniscient Judge Judy. <laughs> that's great he yeah. really needed the collar <laughs> i know right <laughs> okay so i'm just gonna hop right in so i'm hearing patrick stewart's monologue the space the final frontier right away the first change i notice is that it's where no one has gone before oh, yes yeah finally i mean yeah. that, it, it took that long but still yay in, in original series it was where no man has gone before and so i just love that tiny little thing it's like oh now they're thinking about women yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then also that theme song if you've seen star trek the motion picture you'll know it's the same theme that happens in the beginning of that movie it's by oh, alexander right. courage and man it is joyous isn't yeah. it <laughs> i was actually gonna uh ask about that if you know any history surrounding this theme, because like it sets a perfect tone of excited and yes. passionate, you know, and like original series is just like, woo, like, <laughs> we're just chilling, we're having a great time in space. And I don't know, Next Gen feels very like, here we go, we're explorers. And yeah. why did you choose that one? I think I read that Roddenberry had wanted to use it for Star Trek Phase Two before that had been totally uh-huh. shut down. And that was before the motion picture came out. And so I think Alexander Courage was like, well, I already wrote it. Yeah, <laughs> um, and used it for motion picture, and then it, Roddenberry liked it. He thought it was a great theme and wanted to use it for the next generation. And I'm I think they did. I love that it's a full orchestra too, mm. because it really gives you that big sense of like, all right, like the team is here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a fuller sound, and I love the orchestra playing it. Well, and I feel like a lot of old shows used to use, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not the musician here, but uh, mm-hmm. used to use like more full orchestras for things. And then it started transitioning into like less of that. And so it's cool that it 
like, I don't know if that was still happening in the 80s, but it's cool that they maintained a little bit of that sacredness to the orchestra. At least. That was definitely true for movies. I don't know about TV shows, but you think about a lot of old movies, like yeah. use orchestras, like for their full scores and everything. Um, composition at this time was definitely getting into some more electronic stuff. <laughs> and there were a couple times during this episode where I heard like a synth version of like, and I was like, okay, the eighties are here. They have arrived. They have arrived in the eighties. That's my first sense I got. I was like, yes, 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 yes. But I thought they did a good job. Like I, like looking at everybody's hair and makeup, I never thought like, oh, yikes, this is the eighties. No, no, like not at all. And I, I'm sure, I mean, that is incredibly intentional because it's not supposed to take place in the eighties. Like Russia doesn't have big, huge hair, you know. Totally. That's true actually they sort of strayed away from the regular style actually I can only say that for this episode if we think of almost (laughs) any other being down of the planet next generation episode they were wearing like crazy 80s there was one where they're just like a workout planet where everyone's running around in leg warmers (laughs) that's where they all have to run and Wesley falls Mm -hmm. into the Window. Yeah, and he yeah. gets sentenced to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah anyway, yeah. <laughs> what um, do you think of their uniforms? Seeing them right away, I think that it sets the tone, much like a lot of other aspects of the show, from the very first opening shot. That it's beautiful of oh. the silhouette of Patrick Stewart. <laughs> yes, that's oh. what I was going to say. Oh. I was going to talk about that too. And it's so epic, and I'm watching something that feels like the original series older brother more serious mature older brother you have all the star trek fans watching it but also you're trying to bring in new fans like every every show does this when they're making a reboot like especially every star trek show how are you going to pull in the new fans and so i'm wondering from the get-go uh what kind of stuff are they going to be doing that's kind of an ode to old trek and then Mm -hmm. what kind of things are they going to be adding to bring in new viewers and i have a lot of thoughts already but we'll yeah a lot of notes on this yeah yeah i did too we'll talk about it as it comes up but i totally agree that shot of picard is beautiful especially with like kind of the long view of the ship and then just comes boom like right in hanging on picard yes along with to tie it into the uniforms that they also match that tone of like we are serious and we are Starfleet, you know? And I think because now that I have context of what you said about Roddenberry wanting it to show the progress of not just like space travel, but of Starfleet, um, it makes a lot of sense to me that the uniforms would change into something that the tones are a little more muted and um, it's just taken on a more serious edge. And I think it's something that like maybe aliens that they're meeting for the first time can respect a little bit more they're not like look at all that yellow they're like a nice like lovely crimson (laughs) whatever like first appearances are very important and they are is what you see first and it feels very sophisticated yeah Um, besides troy's dress which is very confusing to me i was just thinking about that yeah you know she can wear a dress if she wants i just feel like it takes away a bit of that professional edge and maybe that's me just being not well, see, a great Anna, feminist, so you to me, you sound like there's a captain that takes over the Enterprise in the sixties yeah, of Next Generation, I know, and, and he makes like he makes Troy change out of her dress because he's like, I want everyone on think, on uniforms. I think that she should be able to wear whatever she wants. I guess like it maybe was them trying to maintain some of the looks from the original series with like the short dresses that the women wore. Okay, not only the women. Did you see later in this episode? The men, they have short dresses on. I'm like, okay. Yeah, this is the era of the uh, dress uniform. Yeah, the dress uniforms. And like we had a bit of that in the original series, but it was usually like a V-neck. Journey to Babel. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Seeing like the guy come out in his little dress uniform and then just getting to see the ship when they're separating the saucer section and to see the families, the aliens, the diversity, and to show right away that it's a family ship is really cool and very different from the original series crew composition you know like i saw like some vulcans and like some other species yes yes cool um but yeah sorry troy i'm not a huge fan of the dress but she should be able to wear whatever she wants no i'm not either and i'm i'm also thinking of course from a like 
a producer's point of view and that's you got to have someone hot on the ship you know you have tasha yar she's in uniform she's female but she's security officer i mean badass i'm just gonna say it like she's she's badass that there's this woman who's in this position and i think that was definitely supposed to be a statement also Um, one more quick thing about yar yeah Um, while while we're on it um they also allowed her character to be angry and show anger outward, which for a woman to show is like not very common, you know, like it's, it's not very widely accepted. I mean, of course, times are getting better, things are changing, but still women aren't supposed to be angry, especially in that position, like of a security officer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I love in this episode that she gets to show her fierceness and show her anger and sometimes i'm a little like tasha come on babe like see <laughs> i was going but i'm also like i respect you for having that passion because it drives her and it puts her forward into this like badass position where she's just kicking ass like it's pretty awesome i was definitely of two minds about yar so she's a character that i never really warmed up to until mm-hmm. a little bit later on rewatches I really like Yar but this first go I just was not into her and Mm -hmm. I am kind of I was kind of reminded of it mostly because I think about if you're an officer in Starfleet you've been trained to act like very professionally in all these situations Mm -hmm. and so I think it's a little unfair because Q is putting them through something that's like really insane and really hard to deal yeah. with. And, you know, when she has her burst out at Q a little bit later in the episode, mm-hmm. and she says something like, I've seen people like you tear down people like me my whole life. Yeah. And so I feel like it, we get kind of an unfair glimpse at Yar in the beginning because we don't, we don't get to see her at her best. We get to see her like stressed and going through all of this. But at the same time, she shouldn't be allowed to show it. But I don't know. I also, I just, I also don't really like it. I don't know. Maybe it's Denise Crosby's acting that I'm not really into. I just feel like as a Starfleet officer, you need to just tamp it down a little bit, you know? Yeah. But maybe that's how we got her position. I don't know. I didn't like when she was not listening to Picard. It doesn't show a great demonstration of trust, but also he's a new captain and there's going to be a little bit of shakiness in the beginning of learning boundaries. And I do like that he gives her the space to be like, what alternative do we have, Yar? Like, what can we do? And she's like, sorry, you're right. I spoke out of turn. We can't go and attack them. They're omniscient. And I think that it's nice that he gave her that space. Okay, I was wondering, is this Picard's first day on the ship? Or is he new? Or what do you think? Well, because he's just getting his first officer. So I assume that it's pretty recent. But I don't think it's the first day. I think it's yeah. the first week. Because his captain's log was saying that he was sort of like settling in. So right. I think that it's probably been like a week or two. That was mm. the sense I got yeah. too. Yeah. Well, and something that I'm enjoying right away in this in the first couple minutes of the pilot is that I'm I'm asking a lot of questions. Yeah. I'm really curious. Like I'm I'm thinking like is this Picard's first day or yeah. I'm thinking why is Picard being so cold and stony <laughs> to all these people? <laughs> but it's pulling me in because I'm so curious. We're right in the action, but it's still enough of a beginning that I feel like I'm not overwhelmed by yeah. what I'm seeing. I'm just excited to know more. I agree. I had a question for you on that line. Similarly to how we said in our first episode that we have a bit of a bias because we love the characters, but we're trying to think of it from this first perspective. I'm wondering because I know you're obsessed with Picard. I mean, who isn't? He's awesome. But like Ashley Ronberry, that's the answer. <laughs> he's the one who's not obsessed that with one Picard. Guy. He's the one person out there. And <laughs> my boyfriend who loves Kirk more than Picard, get out of here. I'm sorry. I know there are a lot of listeners that love Kirk more than Picard. Yeah. But I'll fight you. Them. Anyway, sorry. You know what I'm saying? Ashley loves Picard a lot. <laughs> So um, I want to ask from a perspective of really loving him, if you were on his ship on this first week, you know, and you hadn't known him how we know him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and viewing it like we're watching it for the first time. Yeah, I I did not like Picard in this first half of the episode. Mm. I mean, I, I shouldn't say I don't like him. I should say I get that he's just trying to command respect. He is just trying to put his best self forward. And that self to him means no emotions. My shell is up. I have all of this stuff to do. Like he's the ultimate professional. 
And mm-hmm. so I think I kind of have more of a neutral opinion about him. The moment it shifted for me was when they pick up Riker from Farpoint Station. Yeah. And then Riker enters the bridge. Picard doesn't even look at him. Yeah. And he's like, go watch this hilarious video about what just happened to Q. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love, yeah, that video is hilarious. Have, so whoever did the camera work of that video... <laughs> I was thinking I was thinking this too. I was like, wow, they really had some editors edit this whole thing (laughs) for Riker. They have multiple cameras at different parts of the ship and parts of the bridge and like cameras for everywhere. I just want to know. Yeah, like cameras at head levels. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I thought that was great. So he made Riker watch the show and then Riker and Picard have this one on one. He asked Riker, Do you intend to always put the safety of the captain above the safety right. of yourself and the crew and Riker's like uh, permission to speak candidly sir yeah um, and and basically you know Riker's saying they're they're discussing the roles of the captain and the first officer I kind of read this scene as a little jab or maybe like a stark difference to the original series where Kirk beamed down to mm-hmm. every planet and mm-hmm led every mission and I think this is Picard telling the audience in his way I'm not going to be beaming down and Riker if I do beam down like to a dangerous situation will you stop me or whatever but but I mean he's also trying to gauge what is Riker's level of commitment to his safety in what kind of ways is Riker gonna break the rules for him I don't know is that what you thought too I had a bit of a different viewpoint with this whole scene I think he knows Riker beam forward he knows he's coming he was putting on this show to test Riker to see how good is he in this dangerous situation I need to learn how he will be in the worst situations so that I know that if he can be good in those situations he can be great in regular diplomatic stuff gone right (laughs) mission totally well and right before the scene he asked Riker to manually reattach the saucer which we have to talk about the saucer separation Mm -hmm. a little bit more Mm -hmm. but he asked Riker to manually reattach that yes and that is something as Picard says it's something that everyone should be able to do but it's kind of rare if they have automatic lock on you would think they would just do that but Picard was totally just saying hey prove yourself right now and I think all of that went into it, like the, the little interview he does with why did you let your captain be aboard? I think you're right. It is sort of this gauging how he is, but I think it's also all a test. And then when he feels Riker made a good response, they're showing a bit more vulnerability. That's when Picard shows his own vulnerability about, I don't do well with children. Please, mm-hmm. for the love of God, help me around children, which is like, same. Yes, <laughs> like, yes, I yes. I that it's cool because then... Once Riker opened up a bit, Picard then does, and they had this rapport that then I think made them closer just in that moment. Picard's smart. He knows how to run a ship and he knows how to manage his people. Yes, that's exactly what I noticed too. As soon as Riker shows his vulnerability, then so does Picard. And then this is the turning point for me because when Picard says like, I really want you to make me seem like a friendly captain because I'm terrible with children. That is such a honest thing to say. What a gentle way of saying, thank you for sharing your honesty with me. Now, yeah. here's something about me that, yes, is important to him. But also, like, did they really have to say that when, like, Q is, like, attacking the right. ship? And it's just something <laughs> exactly. generous that Picard it's is giving totally, him. And totally then great. later in the episode, when Picard interacts with all these other, like, high-level officers, the ones we'll come to know as our main cast, his shell is opening up more and more and more throughout the episode. And this yeah. is where I just have compliment Patrick Stewart is when oh god my love when Gay Smith Fadden when Beverly Crusher comes on the bridge for the first time and you see Picard's face just melt like you know and we just learned that Picard brought Wesley's dad's body back like after he passed away to their house and so that's the kind of like trauma from both ends attached to that one moment you don't see that person again for years how old is wesley now like uh maybe like 16 yeah 15 yeah i think around there 14 there's a memory alpha article someone can go look up (laughs) (laughs) um but anyway like it's been a long time and so imagine like that's the only time you've met somebody and then to see their face again 
And I just think you're so right. Patrick Stewart and Gates McFadden had such uh, incredible acting and they have such on-screen chemistry right away. But I feel similarly, weirdly with Riker and Troy, their acting was a little overacting. Yes. They really love each other. I kind yeah. of forgot, like, honestly, because well, I never think of them as a couple, even though I know that like everything happens later. I did enjoy that moment when we first see Troy and Riker. I wasn't sure if Troy's voiceover was her trying to communicate in Riker's head. Like, can can she send her thoughts to Riker and can he receive them? I have so many questions about this because, first of all, she's half Betazoid. I don't think that she had that ability, but also I was wondering if they had, like, mentally bonded before, but that's more of a Vulcan thing. So I don't know if Betazoids do similar kind of, like, bonding rituals that Vulcans they, do. They do. They do. I only know that from Luaxana Troy in Deep Space Nine because she's a full Betazoid. And so I, I believe they do bond mentally. Okay, so that's what I was thinking is the case. Maybe they had bonded in the past and they still shared that? I don't know. Well, and she says, do you remember your training, Imzadi? Or maybe not training. Imzadi is, uh, I wish I only know this from fan fiction. Imzadi <laughs> is like saying my love in the Aww, language in Beta Z. So it's kind of, it's a term of endearment. This is so similar to the motion picture. Like there's a lot of this because Gene Ronberry was basing the characters of Troy and Riker off of Decker and Ilea. Oh, from the motion picture, interesting. Um, which you know, read whatever you want into that because, <laughs> yikes! Yeah, Decker is kind of a Riker type personality. Mm -hmm. he, they're both like very responsible, very motivated to do well at work. They both want to climb the corporate ladder, get higher ranked at Starfleet, and yet they both have these weaknesses for women. I don't really like that they were based off of Decker no, and Ilya. That makes me like it less, actually. Yeah, I know. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, could I say for a moment the moment when I respected Picard? Yes. It was much earlier than your moment. Oh, yes. So when Q takes them into the courtroom, at Yar, Troy, Picard, and Data. Mm -hmm. Data yeah, Data's there. Yeah. Because he read out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the scene was so cool. I really liked a lot of aspects of the first courtroom scene. I think it was the guy with the bell or whatever. He's like, the prisoners will stand. And Picard motions for him and Yar to sit. And that act of like outward defiance really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. This oh. dude is awesome. <laughs> like, because it's such a subtle thing. But this is actually a interesting trope that I've seen in a couple other things, like in the play Waiting for Godot. At the very end of the play, they say, All right, let's go. And then the stage direction says, They do not move. So, and then there's also a Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode where mm. they're like, hey, we should talk. And then they just stay silent. So I first thought that was cool because Star Trek, I think, is clearly referencing like sort of a waiting for Godot as yeah. a moment yeah. there, you know? Yeah. This outward defiance of the stage direction almost, like breaking that fourth wall. But th then this time he's like defying Q and defying the continuum. Yeah, yeah. The continuum and all of that. So I just thought that was a really cool moment and it made me really respect Picard. I didn't even notice that. That is awesome. Back to the very beginning of the episode, Picard mentions or somebody mentions that they're going deep into space, which they've never been into before. And Picard is like, I wonder what lies ahead. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> and the second they cross into new territory, Q appears. He's talking yeah. about, oh, well, back in the mid 21st century which of course is like the 80s yep. um like humans fought each other because of blah 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 and 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 q changes into an army uniform and then he talks about like drugs i don't have a lot of answers for you but i have more questions <laughs> okay oh good good <laughs> which we're actually not. called the dura sisters question podcast <laughs> I was wondering the exact same thing about this uniform. I assumed it was from the eugenics wars and drugs. I think he was referencing people who are enhanced, maybe like those are the kind of drugs he was referring to. But this is what was so fascinating to me is he says you controlled people with drugs. And then he like used a little pouch. Yeah, to like sniff some Coke or something. Yeah. yeah. 
And this reminded me exactly of the Jem Hadar and the Ketrasel White. Yeah, yes, yes. This is a, this was what I wanted to bring up too. Was I wrote in my notes like Jem Hadar question mark? <laughs> yeah. Like, but I'm wondering in the eighties, did we control people with drugs? I also assumed eugenics wars, yeah. and I definitely thought about Jem Hadar, and that really that shook me. Yeah, so I thought that that was a wild like pre-reference, and I'm wondering if the writers of Deep Space Nine went back and were like, "Huh, oh, that's a cool idea. Like, let's do that for the Jem Hadar." You know, because that's like, exactly what they do. They're controlled by drugs, yeah. They did explain it a little bit more while they're in the court. Troy was saying, this isn't a hallucination, like, keep your it eyes. It is real. Usually, Star Trek's a huge fan of referencing things that are from our viewers past. I thought it was kind of interesting, though, because I'm always complaining that that is a part that I don't super love about Star Trek, is that they continue to reference Moby Dick and Shakespeare. Even, even Riker says to Data, Pinocchio, and I'm like, you're making an ancient Just reference. Quoting Shakespeare, of uh, course. Yep. You know, I wrote like, that down. <laughs> that's also a Patrick Stewart thing. Sure. Yeah. That was an ode yeah. more to his, like, past, or to his yeah. acting career in yeah. Shakespeare because he's the best Shakespeare actor out there. Don't at me. <laughs> uh, well, Kenneth Bragnall, maybe. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I think that it was cool to get a bit of new information, but now we weren't given enough. We've talked a lot about what we like on this episode so far. I think probably my only complaint with maybe the whole episode, the trial was badly written and... Mm very confusing like I feel like it was shoved in the middle of the plot I don't think this is just because I know and love Trek so much like I love Next Generation because it comes up with fantastic plots but in this episode what I love the most was the interpersonal relationships that were building between the characters and all the character moments and just seeing like how they changed from the beginning to the end of the episode that was my favorite part this trial that shoved into the middle of let's test humanity, let's see if they're worth saving, you're not ready for the future type of thing just seemed confusing and unneeded and like they were trying to do too much. I think that I was mostly confused how wishy-washy Q was. Like Picard said, yeah. and Q was like, you're right, anyway, I'll try you instead. And like, I was like, yes, Picard's convincing, but Q was also stubborn as hell. And that's also because I know him. And so probably he wasn't as well written out yet. I mean, I think that they intended to bring Q back for quite oh, a while. Yeah. Like that he was- yeah. It, it, it says something that he was in the first five minutes of an episode, but he's a consistent figure throughout Star Trek. And like, obviously the trial is a consistent theme. And I think this is kind of representative of the writer's room because I know, and I've read a lot of interviews with different people that so many of the writers from the first season quit because oh. Roddenberry had a huge ego and mm-hmm. he created a Star Trek Bible that he gave to each writer and said, you have to fit in this, this, and this into every episode. And they thought it was too constricting. Yeah. And so they ended up leaving. And so he drove away some great writers. A large part of it is because Roddenberry is shoving his idealism into Star Trek, which is good. And that's why we love Star Trek. Yeah. But I think what it's done in this kind of forced way. And, you know, the other thing I thought about the trial, that's one of the reasons it didn't entice me, was because they're trying to be too much like TOS in a next generation format an aspect i did like that they seem to keep similar from the original series was q's first appearance where he's speaking in high english and i thought immediately of trelane from the original series one moment too where they zoom in very dramatically on q and they don't do that the rest of the episode but it felt very original series and i was like that was a lovely ode and then they stepped away from that enough to make it feel like new trek you know and make q different from a new villain i think that the idea of the trial is good on paper but the way that they fleshed it out is not my favorite and not the most interesting thing agreed but John Delancey is amazing and he's Q and one of my favorite moments of Q in this episode is when the trial starts and he just drops in in this amazing (laughs) throne just the most diva (laughs) yeah so extra yeah I do love that Uh, I agree. He's a great actor and such a good villain to open with because it shows that we're sort of stepping away from some of the mediocre villains of the original series. And sure, there's going to be some mediocre villains in the next generation to come. But there's also, like Ashlyn mentioned in the intro, some of the most amazing villains ever. Okay, so Hugh has this line that he says that the humans aren't prepared for what lies ahead. And I'm wondering 
first off, does he just mean the end of the episode? Like that the humans can't handle right. whatever the mystery at Farpoint is? Mm-hmm. Or do you think he's talking about the Borg? I honestly got some Borg vibes from that scene as well. Especially like, like they're giving Q longevity in the series. Like yeah. he's coming back. So that's why I thought more it was about the Borg. I agree. Um, I was wondering if we could move to the uh, action-packed moment where they separate the saucer. Yes, yes, let's talk about that. Okay, because I did not remember that the saucer gets separated in the first episode. I thought that that was not a thing till a while. Um, and so I was shocked and also very impressed because it shows right away the ship's capabilities. Wait, was there any saucer separation? What? No. Was this the first, very first yes. one? Okay. Yes. That's what I thought. And Loki, is it the last one? Do we ever see it do it again? Yes. I don't Okay. Yes. Okay, good. In I movies, just I think. Yeah. Um, but that's what I mean. Like I feel like in the, it's not utilized enough in the series. No, there's um, only a couple. Um, yeah. I, but I feel like they don't But it's also only for these big emergencies. Well, so. it's a big deal. Yeah, and I love how dorky the ship looks without the saucer yeah. section. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a stunted little thing. I just don't understand. Oh, okay, along with how dorky it looked. So the effects in this episode they held up okay. I didn't yeah. I didn't notice anything like glaringly bad. Mm-hmm. It turns out they're done by ILM, which is the Industrial Light and Magic um, mm. company, which is owned by Lucasfilm. <laughs> you know, George Lucas, yeah. Star Wars. But yeah, I thought the saucer section was awesome and I totally agree. It's a way of saying like this is not your grandpa's trick. Yes. Like, yeah, we're also, taking the ship apart. Right? Also, what an introduction for Riker to be asked to go to the battle bridge on his first day, you know, and yeah. he's being beamed up. Even Riker said, like, wow, this captain is down to business. Like, he's not missing around. <laughs> Shows the capabilities of the people that he brings onto the battle bridge, like O'Brien. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> O'Brien. in the first episode. For those of you who don't know, O'Brien is an engineer. He's not the chief engineer until Deep Space Nine. And he also has quite a few episodes uh, in the next generation. Um, he's a character that they really developed later. And I had also forgotten he was in this. But I'm, I'm wondering, does Picard generally reference the whole con? Because he knows who Data is. He knows who O'Brien is. But he's not calling them by name. He's just calling them, like, at the con. I kind of thought it was a way of showing that Picard was unpersonal. You know, yes. like he's he's not like a a Kirk or a Riker who's gonna learn everybody's names and then bake them all cookies. Yep. No, he he's just like do your duty. It maintains a bit of a barrier between him as a captain and, and his. I was gonna say subjects. That's not the right word. He's not a he's not a tyrant. But no, like, but it does. It does create that distance. Mm-hmm. And I also felt like in the first half of the episode, the people on the bridge are Picard, Data, Worf. Tasha and Troy. Yeah. And then we go down on the planet. We go down to Farpoint Mm -hmm. Station and we meet Riker and Crusher and Wesley uh, Wesley Mm -hmm. and Jordy. Yes. And my thought is when we first meet all of them on the planet, I'm like, now everyone I like is down here on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wow, they got all the friendliest people on the planet and all of the most professional, coldest people on the planet. Um, Jordy is just seems like such a cool guy right away. Yes. And, um, and I do love Riker's relationship with Crusher and Wesley. Uh, he seems to have a bit of a bond already with them, which is kind of fun because Wesley, God help him, he needs someone who's going to be nice to him on that ship. <laughs> Although Wesley's introduction, I was confused by it. They meet Riker and then Crusher says hello. And then Wesley says, she's not unfriendly. She's just shy around men she doesn't know. Really? She was like, Wesley! Wesley. <laughs> she was like, yeah. stop it. What's the point of that? Like, it was it he wants his mom to, like, start getting friendly with guys? Like, I he's think, trying to do that? I, what? I think that he trying to get his mom to be a little more out and open because probably she hasn't interacted with a lot of men since Jack died. And because. Well, she's clearly been focused on her career. If she's yeah. CMO, Chief Medical Officer aboard really? the like best pretty young, starship dude, in the fleet. CMO. Yeah. yeah. And so um, maybe it was Wesley's very awkward attempt to try and get her to socialize. Um, but I just thought it was rude. It definitely said more about Wesley than it did mm-hmm. about Crusher. I thought. I thought the Gates McFadden did a wonderful job of straddling that line between like, yes, 
she's professional, but she's also going to tell you how she feels. And she told Picard, she's like, you're being rude to my son. Like, I'm mad at you now. And she just, great. like, on the bridge. She, she left that bridge so fast. She was like, I'm out of here. She's the only one who has balls to call Picard out like that. And I admire yep. her so much for that because she's not taking any of his BS. I wish that Riker had been on the bridge to help him in that scenario because he had just lived yeah. his worst fear. <laughs> I know his worst fear was dealing with the kid. He was doing yeah. so well. He was helping Wesley, he let him sit in the chair. But then Wesley started to be like, proximity alert, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and Picard just lost it. Like he, he was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> so I think it shows that Picard is trying to respect that he knew Jack. Mm-hmm. And also I got hints of a little bit of love interest mm-hmm. from this pilot. When Picard, I sh- it showed that he's really deeply thinking about her when he goes back and apologizes in sickbay. And he says, well, I yelled at your son. <laughs> I threw you off the bridge. Yeah. You know, he's like, I'm sorry. And he doesn't strike me as someone who's deeply thinking about others' feelings that much of the time because he's all about the first duty. So true. Yes. And yeah. I love the hope in his eyes when she's like, no, I requested this position. Yeah. He, Picard is like, oh, someone does care about me more than just my command. What do you think about this whole plot with the jellyfish? <laughs> it's sort of an animal rights activist episode, which, hey, I love it. I thought that I got a little teary-eyed, I'm not going to lie, with oh, the jellyfish yeah. found its mate and got to be free. That was really lovely. It bit Mary very much made me feel like when they were beaming the whales back down in Voyage Home. And, oh. <laughs> and they were back, George and Gracie were back together in the open seas you know it's because humans we can't resist a good love story between animals not quite sure i'm fully invested in the main guy at the at far point stations motivations i don't think that i fully believe anything about him i don't know actor was very good or i never liked him i thought just the writing like we barely meet him we just see as see him as the stuttering guy who's like telling Riker, we have no apples there's an apple now he's like don't do that again and i was like what like it just that part seems so half formed and i know that this is technically a two-parter even though i watched it on netflix so it went in one whole thing um, but it was I technically yeah. split up into part one and part two, which I think the first part ended at McCoy's closing. I yes, that was flat. where the first part ended. In the original premiere, both part one and two were aired in, in one showing. Oh, yeah. interesting. So then that sort of um, changes what I was about to say. That's good to know because it did feel almost like two episodes, like the Q portion and the jellyfish portion. Um and I wish they had gone together a little bit more. I felt like the Q stuff was a little bit tacked on and that the he was like, this is your greatest challenge. Like, how will you face it? And like, they did it pretty easily. <laughs> um, so, and Q is really, he becomes somehow very nonchalant at the end. Yeah. Like, oh, you passed the trial. And he's like, well, gotta go, Picard. Woo! And, and leaves. Yeah. So the episode itself, sure, it had some messy plot moments, but I thought the tone and the pacing was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I felt that there was a great combo of humor, of intrigue, and then of sadness, and then it brings you back up into humor. The scenes had intentions to further either a certain part of the plot or a certain part of the characters. And yes. the other thing I was going to say on that is that how impressed I am that the characters are all seemingly have motivations and already yes Um, yes data's already on his pursuit to be human which is amazing because it's his whole pursuit throughout the entire series data's my favorite character so i'm going to talk about him a lot just in general and troy has her own struggles with being half betazoid Riker is coming into this new position and he's seeing Troy again, which is like a double whammy. And Jordy's, Jordy, we learned his, his visor hurts him every time. And that's sad, but that's all he gets. Yeah, Jordy and Worf gets barely any backstory. Also, I had a question about Worf. What's his position? What is he doing? Where does he fit in? I don't really understand a lot about Worf in this episode. Um, I think especially because I don't remember a lot of season one of The Next Generation. And so I only really remember when he becomes security chief. But right now he was at the helm sometimes. He was in the back station some other times. Like, do you know what he's doing? 
So the real life answer is that they only brought Worf on as a Klingon and he was only casted for seven episodes. Really? Um, the first season. But because Michael Doran did such a tremendous job, they kept him and they ex extended his contract through all of season one. And then, of course, it was extended till the literally every other series after that because Michael Doran's amazing. And this is my call for hashtag Worf solo series. Yes. Uh, I'm calling. Michael Doran wants it. Yes. We want it. Everyone wants Worf's solo him series. Give us the time of our lives. I'm yeah. ready. Yeah. Anyway, in this first episode, I think he's just kind of a floater doing stuff in the back. I don't, I don't know. Because when that guy gets frozen and then O'Brien comes, yeah. but at one point, like, Worf comes up to the con. Uh -huh. And so I feel like he's he can just float and do whatever. He's just I, versatile. I, okay. Yeah. For some reason, I was thinking he was maybe, like, assistant security chief. And he was just on the bridge to, like, assist because he does later, you know, become security chief, like you just mentioned. Maybe he's like shadowing Yar. <laughs> That's right. That's the kind of the impression I got, because they're always together, unless Picard is specifically like, Worf, you stay. And yeah. and I do love a couple moments where Worf, <laughs> he like is too aggressive and he points his phaser yes. at the screen. And Picard's like, what are you going to do? Shoot a hole in the view screen? Yeah, and, and Worf is really like ashamed of that. He's oh, like, oh God. He's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but then I love it because Picard says like, that's all right. We're all learning and growing or something along that aspect. No, no, Riker does. Oh, Riker. Because oh. I, I love that because Picard is like, hey, don't be dumb. And then Riker's like, aw, you were just reacting really quickly. Good job, yeah. buddy. You know, and yeah, so I love because they're out very well. Yes, right it sets that up. And I also, I meant to mention this earlier, but at this point, Picard is already calling Riker number one. And so in this short time, we see that, oh, now he's got a little nickname, you yeah. know, like. That's super cute. Well, Picard doesn't seem like he's very likely to give nicknames, so it's even better. No, that is what captains call their first officers, but we only saw it in the pilot episode of The Cage. Yeah. Um, and perfect. so it's it's cute that they're bringing it back here. Also, can we, I just really want to say Worf's savage comment, permission to clean up the bridge. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. See, Lord, oh, like that is perfect and it's so, such a Worf moment. It's so good. It's zingers like that that make me love Worf so much. Yeah. He's such an underrated character. I yeah. love Worf. Also, one more thing I want to say about that moment that's bizarre to me is that when Q appears, Yara does nothing. She just sits there. She doesn't even take out her phaser. I'm like, what you doing, security chief? Like, yeah, it's her on the bridge threatening your captain. A lot of problematic things with Yar. Yeah, she's just, I don't know. I I just don't know how great of an officer she is as much as like I enjoy her sometimes. Yeah, I don't super enjoy her, but eh, I don't yeah. know. Like y'all fans out there, tell us why you love her. <laughs> Tweet us at the Dura sisters why you like reasons you like Yar. Yeah. <laughs> so we were we were talking about and kind of racking up things to please old Trek fans and bring mm -hmm. in some new ones. Yeah. I thought the intro of the holodeck was super cool. Yes. Um I also thought just in general, having Riker be kind of the eyes of the audience for the whole show. So Riker's coming onto the ship. He doesn't know how a galaxy class starship works. Neither yeah. do we. Mm -hmm. And so I love that when the ensign's telling him, this is how you locate commander data yeah. um, and, and all of these things that we're not used to. I think it's cool that Riker acts as the eyes for the audience because you always need a character like that when you're introducing something new. Agreed. And I think Riker's great because he's super likable and he's very enthusiastic and he's yes. very just like ready to go. And so him going into the holodeck, meeting Data, yeah. just experiencing how awesome the holodeck is. And isn't this kind of like the first virtual reality? This is the first example of it. Once again, we're seeing Gene Ronberry predicting technology ahead of his time. <laughs> yeah, they, the, the people ha are holding pads, which we might view now and think, oh, they just all have iPads. But of course, in the 80s, yeah. there were no iPads or called, tablets. They're called pads on the show, which is cool. Yeah, they're called pads. And along with that scene in the holodeck where Data and Riker meet, was really not what I remembered as to be their first introduction and how Riker was pretty wary of Data. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was like, I'm not super comfortable. Yeah, he has that line where Riker says, aren't you a machine? Because he's asking Art, like, isn't the title of Commander just 
theoretical, like, isn't it just yeah, honorary? Like, no, I went to Starfleet. And Data says, if you have prejudice, it's very human. He's yeah. not offended by it. Well, what a great episode. And wait, wait, do you want to talk about McCoy? <laughs> yeah, I forgot to talk about McCoy. I love McCoy. McCoy's awesome. I think it's interesting to have him be the guest star that they use for the opening of The Next Generation. And I'm sure, I'm almost positive the reasoning was because they couldn't afford William Shatner or Spock. That's what I was thinking. And I think it's also funny and kind of sad that they even reference Spock while McCoy is there because they're like, well, we have to talk about our biggest moneymaker and everyone's favorite character. No points on your ears, boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The age makeup is hilarious oh, to me. I think good. it's pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, DeForest Kelly was old, but I mean, he was still 10 years away from dying and he died early because of lung cancer. But um I love I did love seeing him and I think that's something else to kind of appease the old fans and yep. say here we go we're holding your hand here's this character that you love he's a doctor not an escalator and he's here to <laughs> say it's okay next generation's going to be really good I agree that's exactly what I got out of it too and ushering in a new enterprise as well because like he says yes. and she'll always bring you home which I love yes yes I think that's a great quote to end on yeah. too. The Enterprise will always bring you home. Mm -hmm. It's perfect because the next episode that we have on the pod, there's no Enterprise to speak of. I saw a meme recently that said that uh, Deep Space Nine is basically an airport and it kind of wrecked me a little bit. <laughs> oh no, I'm always going to call it the airport now. So it's low-key an airport. Um, but anyway, I'm very excited to talk about D Space Nine. It's been really fun to kind of roll through these series and see the different pilots. And I think it'll be really interesting because this is a totally different series coming up. Thank you for listening to the Dura Sisters podcast. Please join us next week to hear our review of the Deep Space Nine pilot, The Emissary, part one and two. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name The Dura Sisters Podcast. And if you would like to become a patron and donate to our podcast monthly, you will have access to fun Q&As, short reviews of the new series Lower Decks, and much, much more. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please give us five stars and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thedurawsisterspodcast at gmail.com. Our intro, Klingon Battle, was written by Jerry Goldsmith, and our outro, Wars Revenge, was written by Arturo Voltaire. And how do you stop from falling out of a bird of prey? You just have to cling on.